0: Today on IT Visionaries, we have a very special episode featuring an interview between Mission CEO Chad Grills and Dr. Eric Topol, a leading researcher in the field of AI and medicine. This interview was originally broadcast as an episode of Mission Daily and includes a number of insights about how artificial intelligence is changing the field of medicine. Enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. Salesforce just introduced the Lightning Platform Mobile, the low-code mobile app development platform that empowers anyone to easily build, publish, and manage AI-powered mobile apps for employees and for customers. Find out more at salesforce.com slash build mobile apps. Hey
1: everyone, good morning. Welcome back to Mission Daily. Today's guest is an expert in medicine, machine learning, and so much more, Dr. Eric Topol. Thank you for joining us.
2: Chad, great to be with you.
1: So the first thing that jumped out at me from your new book, Deep Medicine, was your story about a knee replacement. And the reason why I connected with this story was, uh, so I'm a veteran. I was in the military for six years. And when I was transitioning out and when I would get back from deployments, I would go through the same dance with the doctors who evaluate each soldier after a deployment and when they're out processing. And this same dance was, would you like pills? And every single time, say, no, no, I don't have a history of depression. Uh, I'm good to go. I'm healthy. I'm happy. I'm excited. I'm ready to leave the military. And their response would be, would you like pills? (laughs) And I would say, I don't think you heard me. So Dr. Topol, you have this story in the book about when you got a knee replacement and I'll let you tell it, but I would love for listeners to hear your experience because you're a doctor. Yeah. So take it away.
2: Well, thanks, Chad. I didn't realize we had some common ground I think so. I guess it's pretty uh, big issue about the overuse of opiates that you're referring to. But in my situation, I opened the book because I'd had a horrific response to the knee replacement, where I had this, you know, profound in- inflammation, basically like uh, attacking that artificial joint as if it was a foreign body. Mm-hmm. And so when I showed up a month later to the or the surgeon, the orthopedist. And I had like a purple knee. It looked like gangrene had set in and I hadn't been able to sleep. I was in constant pain. And so he said to me, "Uh, you need to see your internist to get antidepressants. And so that was the beginning of the book. But I had been prescribed opiates and I could tell because I was in so much pain how it'd be so easy to get addicted to them. So, you know, the overuse of medications is, is an issue, but that's a robotic type response. And here what we want to do is get more human to understand what is the real problem and not to either use medicines, whether they be opiates, whether they be antidepressants. And that's what the, the book is really gets into is how we can use this new technology of AI to get the human side of medicine, which is the most important part, to sure. get it restored.
1: Yeah. And I think that when people think about machine learning and AI, it can feel a bit scary, but you introduce some basic goals in the book that take it away from the realm of you know, Hollywood paranoia and bring it to the practical realm of AI is just going to give your doctor a chance to be empathetic and make better decisions. So how would you address the issue or present the issue to someone who says, I don't even have access to my data right now. I'm scared about the medical community getting more power of machine learning or AI. Yeah.
2: Well, I think the biggest part is for the individual to take much more charge so that is about having one's data, all of the data, so it's not just what might be in your record, but also that your sensor data that you'd be using that are gonna get more medicalized over time. Sure. Your genomic data, if you have that, or your microbiome data, all these different sources of data. And those inputs with the right deep learning algorithms are gonna be your coach, and whether they're coach for a specific condition or whether it's your general coach or the future. So, Part of this is really in this world that's flooded with data, health and medical data, that you need to own it. And that's where we're headed. It's inevitable. It's already occurring in other countries around the world, hopefully someday here.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned in the book that I didn't know that it was possible to sequence someone's genome in only 19.5 hours. So 19 and a half hours, you can have your genome sequenced. That's really exciting because I feel like not many people know that that's a possibility now. Are there any other stats like that that you, when you tell people, they're basically just amazed they had no idea that the science was this advanced?
2: Well, that record was a Guinness World Record in a, in a sick newborn, which not only was the sequence, but also the interpretation. It saved the boy's life, the story that I told there. But, you know, we're getting quicker and quicker. And the reason why is, again, because of AI. Mm-hmm. The reason is that humans couldn't analyze these billions of data points rapidly and accurately. And so that applies, you know, one of the things that's so remarkable is that machines can be trained to see things that humans will never be able to see. And so many examples of that are like, uh, you're looking at a medical scan and radiologists, 30% have false negatives, that is they miss things. But machines can be trained to miss almost nothing. Right. Uh, what do you have? A colonoscopy? You've probably never had one. You're too young for that
1: stuff. Th- thankfully, not. I'm trying to punt as, uh, it's not uh, as far. my
2: favorite procedure, you know. But sure. when you go through that, the chance of missing polyps, small polyps, is really high. But now with machine vision, it's almost unheard of. It will be unheard of. So these things about accuracy and speed and then lowering costs and outsourcing to machines so that we can get back to the human side of medicine.
1: And maybe we could go as far as to say we can start exploring the human side because this is, uh, it's like, it's been the great dream of medicine that has been propelling it forward for the last 2000 years is that one day we're going to have time to be empathetic and treat each individual as an individual instead of this weird scenario we have going on now where doctors have to see, I don't know, how many people a day on average Uh, does a generalist have to see?
2: Often 20. Or could you yeah. bring it up to 30? It's, it's actually ridiculous. Seven minutes of visit is the average in the United States. And so that has to get we, the gift of time that can be right. brought in by this is really important. But the other thing is when you have those brief minutes, it's with this doctor pecking away at a keyboard. And you might never see the doctor because they're not looking at you. Well, right. we have an opportunity now for keyboard liberation. And this is exciting because that's just using the really advanced natural language processing form of AI and already in clinics around the country that's getting started in other countries, it's actually becoming more routine. And so that's going to be great because the notes are voice synthesized. They're very accurate and they're reviewed by the patient for editing. Mm -hmm. And so this is going to be a whole new look as opposed to the way it has been for all these years.
1: So there are some interesting softwares, like uh, I think Dragon Dictate is one that a lot of medical professionals use. Are there any recording softwares for taking dictation that you're particularly excited about that you feel can transform medicine or are transforming it?
2: Yeah, well, Dragon is pretty primitive, actually, even though it was one of the early ones. Just this week, uh, Google AI published uh, an important paper on their ability to take this uh, very accurately, uh, Notes from Conversation. But uh, there's about 20 companies now. They include Microsoft, of course, but there are many startups that are all over this. So I think it's good to see this race between the incumbents and the challengers. And what's great is it's so competitive and we're gonna really accelerate. And people for years talked about going paperless. Even more exciting is going keyboard less.
1: I completely agree. And uh, the reason why we have to do that, I think it's important to circle back to is that you say, this is a quote, Shockingly, up to one third of medical operations performed are unnecessary. So that's really hard for us to wrap our head around. We want to view doctors as these people who have studied so hard. They're experts. But Dr. Topol, how does this happen?
2: Yeah, well, this is a part of that shallow medicine that exists today. And especially it's a United States problem because we, do, we overdo everything, procedures and operations and lab tests and scans, and we just can't get enough of this stuff. And it's partly because you know, this is the routine. This is a, the fear of medical malpractice. And of course, it's compensated. You know, it's a fee-for-service, basically, uh, that system. So we have to get out of that mode. And part of that is that if you have algorithmic support, so Chad, mm. if you were having a problem, and you got the coach that you shouldn't have this test, have this procedure, and the doctor's telling you you should have it. It's getting an automatic second opinion, in fact, based on the, the whole corpus of medical literature and all your data. So this can really be a whole better way to have a checkpoint on whether something's necessary. Uh, it's part of that, that patient
1: empowerment story. Sure. And so I don't know if this question is a bit controversial, so feel free to, you don't have to answer it but as a business owner, I would really love to be able to see a track record of some of our customers' past experiences working with clients. And if I imagine myself as a doctor who owns his own practice or something like that, quite honestly, what I would want, because I'm so paranoid about you know malpractice things and the craziness of that, I would really like to see an accurate picture of who are the people that are coming to me and Because honestly, there are some people out there that are ruining the medical tort system and the malpractice system for everybody. They're going around from doctor to doctor, suing this person, suing that person. Do you feel like doctors should have a right to see what type of uh, lawsuit activity is in a patient's past at at a glance? Um, Do you feel like this is a real issue? Because in my mind, I know just how hard business is. And I can't imagine being a doctor or a professional that has to see 20 people a day on top of having to grow my business, get funding, get financing. Um, yeah, so any perspective on that?
2: Uh, it's a very interesting point you're bringing up. You know, I think as far as patients, the ones that are litiginous, like you're saying, are few and far between. So gotcha. what we do know in, in medicine is what preempts more than anything, that, you know, getting rid of this uh, idea of a lawsuit is the relationship. A strong patient-doctor relationship, and I'm sure it's a case in business as well. Chance of there being any type of uh, legal entanglement is almost nil. That's another reason why we need to emphasize this—the the human side of medicine. Because the chance of uh, complications—they'll always occur, and a lot of them are not necessarily the fault of a doctor or a surgeon. They just—they happen, and it's just part of the known uh, aspects of what we do. Sure. But when it's done without possible sense of intent or malfeasance. You know, that's, I think, part of this communication, this exquisite and precious bond that we've lost. We've largely lost a lot of this
1: over the recent decades. So how did we go about losing this? Was this something that used to be taught inside medical schools? Was uh, you know, bedside manner, something that was championed before and that we lost it? Or what's what's your view on how this happened?
2: When I graduated <laughs> med school 40 years ago, it was the norm. I mean, we had a lot of time with patients and the, the bond was kind of central. And what's happened, and as I trace it through in deep medicine, what happened in the four decades since is that big business came in. I mean, big business. So, you know, what used to be uh, a night in the hospital was $95. Now it's $5,000. Of course, that's not adjusted for inflation, but you get the picture. Definitely. And and all these things like relative value units and health maintenance, maintenance organizations, and all these electronic health record companies. And so basically it's become a field day for enterprise at the expense of patients. So for example, when the electronic health records were introduced in the nineties, by companies like Epic and Cerner and many others, they were for billing. They couldn't give a hoot about the patients or the doctors. So everything caved for the business aspects of medicine and it lost the patient part of it. Mm. And so that, with that, the squeeze for doctors to see more patients each day and each hour, more productivity. And so now we have the peak burnout and depression among doctors and nurses and clinicians, and by the way, when there's burnout, there's a doubling of errors. And it's wow. a vicious cycle because then there's more errors. And then when there's an error, a doctor gets even more burned out. So yeah. knowing that, so we're we in a pretty desperate state of shallow medicine and we need to move into this different whole opportunity of, of going deep with people.
1: Would you say that doctors are open to the idea of being coached by other or mentored by other older doctors? And I would say, are they open to paying for this service? Because if there is depression in the community. I don't see a lot of doctors going to psychologists, but maybe I'm wrong. I'm just speculating here. You know, it's
2: funny you mentioned that. I would actually think we should go the opposite way where uh, the older doctors are coached by the younger doctors.
1: Okay. Yeah.
2: A lot of the older doctors now, uh, like myself, are, are disenchanted. They've, they've jaded by what's happened. But the younger doctors are coming in. They're you know They're more optimistic. They're digitally savvy. They right. understand that you don't have to always have a a physical presence that you can do things remotely, telemedicine, and they respect the patient's ability to generate their own data. Sure. They respect the fact that patients should own their notes and their data. So it's kind of a flip. The younger generation, that kind of the digital natives, they have an edge here. But what we want to do is reinforce how important the relationship is because otherwise they'll wind up with the same kind of uh, disconnect with people, which we just can't allow. And that's one of the other things, you know, in medical education, this selection of people from mm-hmm. being doctors, we don't need brainiacs now. We right. need people who they know how to use algorithms and machines, but much more important is gonna be the interhuman uh, connection.
1: Yeah, so get the batch of young people that are expecting tricorders and they're probably like working on them or maybe they're advising a tricorder like company um, I love that idea. So you have a series, your pinned tweet on your Twitter profile has a list of all kinds of different stats and facts that I had no idea about. And the central point, if I had to pick one that you're kind of like driving home is that right now patients don't own their data. How do you present this issue? Because for me, that was like, I thought that if I had to get it, I could probably just like call up and get my data easily. But I guess I was pretty na- pretty naive there.
2: Yeah. Well, you're getting it on Twitter, you know, this 27 reasons why you need to own your data. Yes. And we got to get there. The point is, is not only that you paid for it and it's your body, but it could save your life. And part of my problem going back to that knee replacement that we started with is that my orthopedist wasn't in touch with some of my data and we mm-hmm. had some of the dreadful complication uh, that I suffered. So having all your data is, is almost, today in the U.S. impossible because it's distributed over many different doctors and health systems. And you may have moved and, you know, and it, it's some of its paper, some of its electronic. And then there's a sensor data. There's your genomic data. If you get sequenced or if you have things like 23andMe or other types of SNP chip things. And so all this data is homeless and it needs to be at your home. <laughs> that is your digital package, wallet, your file. And we need to get there. But but unfortunately, we have a paternalistic medical system and they're resisting. They're saying, the doctors say, well, we own the data. And Mm legally, doctors and and health systems do own your data, which is totally wrong. So we got to turn this uh, around because in order to use the world of AI, you need all the inputs. And if it's incomplete, it gets to that you're going to draw the wrong conclusions yeah yeah so you know it's just not taking advantage of this this is a remarkable era that we're moving into which is the ability to have ingesting insatiable amounts of data to get accurate outputs and and recommendations for you right but if you're just dealing with a little bit of your data well good luck because it's not going to be what it
1: what it could be what's the biggest impediment in your view of us getting to a society where patients own their own data and have easy access to it?
2: Well, there's two levels that need to get fixed. One is we need governmental legislation, which says that people own their data. Uh, If you want to share it or Mm -hmm. call it with a particular doctor, that's fine, but you are the one to make the call. And we got to stop all the the cyber thievery, hacking, holding data from hospitals hostage. And then selling your data, which is happening left and right. And you don't Mm -hmm. even know it. So that has to be legislation against all those things that you can't have your data sold without your, if you want to sell it and you want to make uh, a profit from your data, if you want to donate it for medical research, that's your right. So that's one thing. The other thing is we need a technologic solution. And that could be, a private cloud with you and your family. It could be a blockchain, it could be some kind of hybrid. In Estonia, uh, which is one country that's way advanced on this, everyone owns their data, it's in a blockchain platform. But it has to be easily accessible, searchable, usable by you, user-friendly. And then just automatically, seamlessly, anytime you have a medical encounter or your sensor is bringing in data, it goes right into the right place, uh,
1: into your file. It seems like until we have a market for basically the first step would be to create a market for pricing. So, because if you're not able to price what this data is worth to various people, then you're never going to get the exchange that, you know, it's not never going to become easy to exchange, basically. And I feel like giving people the ability to make money from their data is a step in the right direction. Is that how Estonia started, or did they just introduce this mandatory platform for everyone to use?
2: Yeah, they they basically, because it's a a new country, and they have very savvy uh, health tech informatics, remarkable, actually. They just said, you know what, this is the right thing in a digital world where data is eminently portable, that this is the way it it should be. It Mm -hmm. should be every citizen's right, just as it should be ideally every citizen's right to have health care, which we are fighting in this country, unfortunately, Sure but also the right of owning your data, it is yours. And uh, we have to, the Estonian model wasn't related to people getting paid for their data, but now they can if they want. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I think that's something that this new thing where many companies are paying for your data or giving you Bitcoins or something or other, that's a sign of respect, finally that person's data is worth something. And really right. something interesting, Chad, I thought most people don't know. Your medical data, when it's hacked and sold on the dark web, is five times more valuable than your, your financial data, your personal data. And wow. the reason for that is because it's sold for medical identity theft, mm-hmm. to get opiate prescriptions, going back to that problem, and uh, for false claims and so it's valuable data valuable to you and valuable to the cyber thieves
1: yeah i feel like that is that's basically the only political conversation i'm interested in having anymore and i think that that's a cause that do you see this cause being potentially something that could unite americans again
2: I, I i hope so if we all stand up both in the medical community and in the public for what should be the rights of individuals part of that is Ownership of data, a uh, part of that is the, the right to have healthcare uh, like in every other developed country. We're going to make some real progress. It's going to take some activism. In fact, mm-hmm. this whole AI era could go the wrong way. If doctors and, and, and nurses and clinicians could get squeezed more. We want more productivity, more efficiency. Well, if we don't flip that and use that gift of time to give back to the patients and doctors, and yeah. we've lost an amazing opportunity.
1: And I think the important thing to remember, it's easy to have this epistemological cartoon about what it's like for a doctor's life when you think, oh, they're rich, they're wealthy, they're taken care of. But the reality is these people are making enormous sacrifices. They're going to school for eight years, 12 years. They're asked to take huge student loans out. And that that's a huge ask to make of them and then say, Welcome to the promised land of having to see 20 patients a day for your whole life. That seems pretty inhumane to the doctors. What do you think about it?
2: Well, I think that's why we see this remarkable burnout, 50% or more, because it isn't why people dedicated their lives and went through seven years at least of training after medical school. And then as you say, pushing $200,000 alone on average. So you know, people didn't want to go into medicine to wind up typing in a keyboard and being a data right. clerk and then not feeling they can really care for their patients, which is what it's become. So we have to get out of this. I haven't heard of another strategy that's going to get this fixed. If you hear one chat, let me know. <laughs> but so, I, I think we have one now that's just waiting to be seized upon. Right. Do this right.
1: The, Exciting thing that I see anyways is, so Silicon Valley is famous for pioneering the coding boot camp basically, or the accelerated training for a job in a high growth startup or technology company. And we're seeing some exciting things happen in the way that those training programs are funded. Are you familiar with ISAs, income share agreements? Oh
2: yeah, sure.
1: So I think, I think that when income share agreements become available for medicine that will be able to have new types of training academies, or maybe at, at the very least, accelerated academies where patients or, excuse me, where doctors don't have to spend quite so long in, in school. Do you think this is a possibility, or do you see there always being a need for you know eight years of medical school or whatever the, the baseline is?
2: It, it's four, and then there's at least three years of residency, and then there's often you know fellowships of. Two, three, four years after that. So,
1: could we shrink that to four or five?
2: Yeah, I think we could reduce it. You know, there are ways to get that down. I think, especially in a time when the information, the data, is going to be you got to, you have a partner, you have a, mm-hmm. you have an accomplice, right. uh, if you will. So, yeah, I think I think we're looking at that possibility more and more over time. But probably we're only, you know, it's high, maybe you take a year, possibly two, over that uh, off over that long uh, training period.
1: And when you're talking with people, whether you're working with groups or you're presenting and speaking, are there any other stats or go-to stories you have where you basically like use these to sound the alarm? Like I I don't, I don't like fear mongering, but I I do. I want to hear fear mongering from you because I think your research is like you're sounding the alarm about some really important topics. So are there any other go-to stories you have to kind of like get people's attention and say, this is a major challenge?
2: Well, I guess, you know, I want to make sure to present the downside or the soft spots of this AI Hmm. opportunity. So in the book I go through the experience of my father in law, who was like a father for me, because my father died at a young age. But at any rate, he was in the hospital and basically they said he was ready to die and they wanted to make you know, take him home so he can die at home at your at your home. And the night before he was gonna come to our home, my wife and daughter you know uh, went in to do healing touch he was resurrected and he lived for weeks after that and a lot of good things happened that otherwise wouldn't now the reason i bring up that story is because prediction is another thing that's touted for ai that it'll be able to predict everything like when you're going to die and if you're in the hospital that you're going to die or you're going to get uh, readmitted or how long you're going to stay and alzheimer's and you name it suicide and turns out that's where I don't think AI has fulfilled its promise yet. It's really good at like reading scans and uh, interpreting slides and skin lesions and like colon polyps and uh, and taking speech to make into text. But for prediction at an individual level, we're not there yet. Now, maybe someday, but I I do want, you know, people listening to not think that AI is the answer for everything. I'm pretty uh, skeptical about the power of prediction and i use that vivid experience to try to portray the problem
1: i'm skeptical too about the powers of prediction i don't think that it's anywhere close to being able to do that but what i'm not skeptical about is the ability of machine learning to predict the right placebo that the doctor could potentially the right verbal spell that the doctor could potentially cast over the patient to get them to start exercising or get them to start doing what they need to in a preventative sense. So if we are to follow the thread of this argument, I would say that the placebo effect is one of the most reliable effects in medicine and that the first big application for machine learning in medicine might be basically teeing doctors up with the right phrase to say. Would you agree with that? Or am I way off base and speculating wildly?
2: No, no. I think there is a lot to that. I really, you know, I think, one of the things that's really interesting is, I you mean, know, I wrote an essay in the New York Times, which is derived from the book Deep Diet. And basically, who would have thought, not, first of all, we now know that everything that we eat is a very different response for each person. Sure. So if you and I ate the exact same thing, the exact same amount, the exact same time, our glucoses after we eat would be completely different. And the same would be now for triglycerides, the, the lipid the, the substance in our blood, and who knows how many other substances. So the point being is that with AI, we're learning, first of all, that that's the case. We're learning that it's not just what you eat and drink, your physical activity, your sleep, your stress, your gut microbiome, all those bacteria that enter your gut, and so many other factors that account for why we're unique. So we learned, interestingly, from AI, Things like and you, you touched on exercise, but people are joking, maybe we need an individualized exercise plan. But right now, we're starting to see some real progress in the individualized diet and getting an algorithm to say, for you, what would be the best things for you to eat to promote your health over your lifetime?
1: Right, because I feel like if a doctor is able to say, OK, you're either following the protocol or you're not, that's a place where machine learning could help get a doctor and a patient it could build the trust at a much, much faster pace than basically a couple years of like quick interactions and quick visits are not going to build up as much trust as a doctor and a patient, both looking at what the results of what they've done and saying like, yes, you're following the protocol we prescribed or no, you're not following the protocol. Do you feel like th- this could accelerate trust between patients and doctors? I,
2: I think that's in, in fact, you know when you have working together, you right. have a partner, the doctor and patient as, uh, in a partnership, and the patient is now much more involved engaged and activated this is to me the ideal model
1: i think so too because i think doctors should be viewed as you know your health coach instead of the person who's you're dreading to go see because you have to you know it means another procedure because right now i think a lot of people rightly so have a negative image in their head and they've had past experiences at the doctors and hospital that have been I mean, poor to say the least. Do you think that that that's the average American has a lot of, I mean, it's it's safe to say, right, that the average American has bad memories associated with medicine and hospitals? I think that's
2: true. You know, I I usually ask a group when I'm physically present and talking to a group, how many of you have been roughed up by your medical encounters? And almost everybody raises their hand. And when I say roughed up, it, it might not be that they had a complication, but rather they feel they weren't. Cared for. They didn't feel that the doctor they were seeing really gave a hoot about them. They were just going through the motions, and so that's what I think is so desperately missing now. And I think we can get there, but it's going to take a lot of work. This is going to call for activism like we've never seen before. But you know, doctors are not known the medical community for activism. But what we did see, you know, in recent times when the NRA went after doctors about staying in your lane. That, you know doctors came alive and so we've seen signs in the last few years with social media doctors can really stand together and hopefully we'll see that here but it'd be even more powerful if that's a public uprising as well
1: do you feel like social media is a that all people who are doctors or professionals in the medical community should they be actively engaging in social media and supporting the causes they care about? Do you think that that's like step one for activism?
2: I'd love to see that. Of course, a lot of doctors will say they're just too busy, they can't handle it. And I understand Mm -hmm. that. But I think that does bring us together. It's a great way to exchange ideas and the latest science and medical advances. But I think also for this matter this purpose it really is helpful because you get in touch with it's a way that people express their emotions and and what they want to stand up for and so it does help rally and you know in this case we may need that
1: so dr topol thanks for being generous with your time here as we get to the tail end of the interview we'd like to do a bit of a lightning round just to see what type of uh, informational inputs you're consuming out there so if you're ready let's uh, jump into it sure what is the best fiction book that you've read? It could be th- last couple of years. It could be uh, throughout your whole life.
2: Oh, gosh. Uh, I don't read too much fiction, but Gary Steingart's book, I'm trying to remember the name of it, was phenomenal. That was when I read last year. I think it was the only fiction book I read last year. But yeah, I really recommend him. He's
1: a phenomenal author. And in your book, Deep Medicine, I noticed some quotes by Alice Huxley and you also had Soren Kierkegaard. I don't know if I'm butchering his name in there. What and who are your intellectual heroes, if if you have any?
2: Oh, I've got plenty. You know, in the AI space, people like Jeffrey Hinton, and you know, so many others that have been the pioneers. In fact, they won today the uh, the Turing Prize, which is the number one most esteemed prize in in computer science for deep learning. Yeah, intellectually, gosh, I could go on and on on this.
1: What about three, maybe? Three intellectual heroes and why?
2: Well, you know, the fellow who wrote the forward for the book, Abraham Verghese, he's a hero of mine because he's the ultimate medical humanist. Okay. I mean, he stands up for the human side of medicine. I think that's missed so much. Uh, you got me. Uh, there are so many I could... Uh, just uh, you give me the...
1: That's two. That's all good. Okay, okay. <laughs> all good. Um, and so what about... I know you're very busy, you're doing a lot, but if you have time to relax and are you watching a TV series, a movie, and if you do watch those, what do we need to see or put into media from an activism point of view to help shift the debate?
2: Well, you know, I don't know that we have really centered on this story that you know I wrote about in the book, but I hope we will. Right now, it seems like the the fixation is on, you know, Theranos and, you know, fraud and all these negative things. But I think there's a really positive story. We just haven't seen it developed yet. And I hope we, we will. You know, there, there's, there's certainly a lot of
1: disenchantment out there, a lot of negativism. We need some positive stories. I agree. So are you watching Netflix or any series or movies, or are you just too busy?
2: Well, I haven't tuned into too much in Netflix. I did watch a series. I'm trying to remember the name of it now with Julia Roberts, a medical. Oh, Homecoming? Yeah, Homecoming. So I thought that was pretty good. I watched all those episodes. And I also watched that one with a comedian, a woman comedian. What's her name now? Mrs. It was excellent. Hilarious, actually. I wish I could remember the name. But um, yeah, so I, I tune into Netflix, you know, when I'm looking for just pure entertainment.
1: And this is a uh, a random question I'm asking for my personal benefit here, but what's your take on ER and is that type of media or dramatization of medicine helpful or does it just cause more problems for doctors?
2: Yeah, I think it gives an unrealistic uh, view. Things like ER and Doogie Howser and all these sure. medical TV shows, they're just not what it's like uh, in right. medicine. So. I think it's a problem. You know, I think we haven't seen what I would call, you know, a true, genuine portrayal of what it's like. There used to be, you know, um, these idealistic shows back, you know, 40 years ago, like Marcus Welby and uh, Dr. Kildare. They were actually too rosy, but they did emphasize the human side of medicine and the, the difficulties that doctors are truly encountering. But, you know, today it's much more just for how can we get the most jazzed up entertainment and catch our viewers rather than, you know, what practice of medicine is really like.
1: And final thought here, if there was one call to action or ask or challenge that you would present to our audience, what would that be?
2: Well, I'd sure be interested to have the people who read Deep Medicine to send me their thoughts, uh, post their comments and reviews. Uh, because if we get this movement going, then we have a chance to take advantage of this probably unparalleled opportunity. But it's a work in progress. In all the years that I've been in medicine, I'm the most excited ever about this. But I'll be interested because you've got a great audience and oh, thank uh, you. a lot of great youthful energy. I'll be really Thanks. interested to see what they, what they have to say.
1: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Topol. This has been a pleasure. And for everyone listening, we'll see you next time.
0: Thank you again to our friends at Salesforce. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. Salesforce just introduced the Lightning Platform Mobile, the low-code mobile app development platform that empowers anyone to easily build, publish, and manage AI-powered mobile apps for employees and for customers. Find out more at salesforce.com slash apps.